0: Writing in the Christian Century magazine, Carol Zaleski tells a story from her parish life. The gospel reading for the day was an account of the Transfiguration, and the first graders who would receive their first communion in a few weeks were stationed in the front pews. Our pastor, who came down from the pulpit to address them, and he began by quizzing them gently about the readings. I wonder if you can help us understand this story about Jesus and his friends. And the children had been well coached and had no difficulty answering. Where did Jesus and his friends go? To a mountain. Who was standing next to Jesus? Moses. And who else was there? Elijah. And turning to the adult congregation, our pastor began to sum things up the disciples were obviously astonished to see Christ in glory standing next to Moses and Elijah. They could not have understand that they were witnessing a prefiguring of the resurrection. And in the midst of this discourse, a little girl in the front pew raised her hand to ask a question. Now, our pastor was prepared to be asked what resurrection means, But the girl asked, Father, what does obviously mean? Leave it to a first grader to raise tough questions. Now, obviously, the priest did his homework. Obviously, he read a commentary or two or remembered a New Testament class from seminary. Scholarly consensus is the transfiguration story connects to the Easter story. And some say it's a prefiguring like the coming attractions at the movie theater. Others say it's an editing mistake that Mark made and Matthew and Luke didn't correct it. But is the connection between the transfiguration and the resurrection obvious to you? You come to church and hear the story once a year. Maybe you've read it on your own and you've wondered what it's about. What does this meaning, what does this strange event mean? Or does the meaning just jump off the page and smack you right in the brain? Well, now that I've brought it to your attention and created a memory, the connection between transfiguration and resurrection will be obvious the next time you hear the story. Because we know how the whole story ends, we hear gospel stories with that ending in mind. We don't have to take it literally to place the transfiguration within a frame of reference. Obviously, we already believe that Jesus is who the heavenly voice says he is. This is just an affirmation for us. But what about the three witnesses, Peter, James, and John? Well, they are astonished, obviously, not because they haven't read commentaries or been to seminary, but they have no idea what's happening, let alone what it means. They're only half awake when things start to happen, or are they really asleep and dreaming? With their own eyes or their mind's eyes, they see Jesus transformed, his face and his clothing glowing with unearthly light. Moses and Elijah are there in conversation with Jesus. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets in a holy huddle with Jesus. And they're talking about what Jesus will accomplish in Jerusalem. In Luke's Greek, it's his exodus. Sheryl Jennings was born in 1940 and began to lose his sight at the age of three. Cataracts started to grow just a few years later. And at the age of 10, he was incorrectly diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa. He grew up. He went to school, he learned to read braille, and to recognize letters embossed on a page. He became a massage therapist. And when he was 51 years old, he met an old friend from his childhood who had vision problems of her own, and she persuaded him to go and see the ophthalmologist that she was seeing. The ophthalmologist looked at Cheryl's eyes and said he could remove the cataracts and get a, a look at his retinas because no one had seen them. And maybe, just maybe, Sheryl could see. Sheryl underwent the surgery. They discovered, the doctors discovered, that the retinas were damaged but not destroyed. And Sheryl recovered after 48 years of only ever being able to sense a change of light or movement he could see. He recovered 2080 vision. The neurologist Oliver Sacks came to meet Cheryl and later wrote about him and his experience. Cheryl had no visible mem- or visual memory. So when he was told what he was looking at, he couldn't connect it to a visual memory and so he couldn't put it together. What he saw was a jumble of parts and pieces. Sheryl and his wife owned a dog and a cat. Unfortunately, they were both black and white. Sheryl had a concept of dog and he had a concept of cat, but when he looked at his family pets, he didn't know which was which, until he reached down to the dog or the cat jumped in his lap and he could touch. Then he could put the pieces together. He had no sense of depth or distance. He couldn't tell the difference between an object and a picture of it until he touched. He had no frame of reference in anything he had perceived before for what he could see. Less than a year later, Sheryl contracted a heavy case of, a case of pneumonia, and in fact, went into respiratory arrest. The, his brain was deprived of oxygen long enough that he lost his damage, lost his vision, rather, lost his sight. Now, Peter, James, and John have no visual memory to help them identify and comprehend what they can see right in front of their eyes. Can they put the pieces together? They know who Jesus is, or at least they thought they did until they see him now. They know Moses, they know Elijah. But can they make it into a whole that they can comprehend? For a few moments, they are able to see, to really see what is real, but rarely visible to human eyes. Now Peter wants to hold on to the experience. Let's have some time to process it. You'll build three shelters, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. Keep them in place. And it is the obvious human response to an experience of the holy. Build something around it to keep it. And protect it and contain it. Then comes the cloud, another piece symbol of God's presence, but they can't see anything when the cloud descends, so, so, so what's going on? And then the voice, the voice, the command to see Jesus for who and all he really is, even if they can't see with their eyes. The holy light, the glory, is still with him. But when the cloud goes, they see Jesus. As Matthew puts it, Jesus himself alone. He he really drives that home. They can't see anything beyond him, above him, behind him, or within him. They look and see Jesus, whose face is brown, just like theirs, and whose clothes are far from white, just like theirs. And Jesus leads them back down the hill and back to work and back on the road to Jerusalem. So Peter, James, and John stumble along just like before. And as hard as they look at Jesus, they can't see anything different about him. But their perspective has changed. They have a whole new frame of reference for all the extraordinary and ordinary things he does and says. The vision is gone but the visual memory is stored away for good. Obviously, opportunities to see reality transfigured into the hidden reality are few and far between. In this life, in this world, our vision and our imagination are limited by what our own eyes and our mind's eyes have seen and can see. And yet there are many people in this world today who would disagree. For them, it's not obvious. Even if they can't literally see it, they know there is a reality beyond what we can perceive with our physical senses. If we have Celtic ancestors, we may have inherited the sight to see the sacred everywhere. We may have the ability to discern and recognize thin places where the unseen reality is really close and it feels that you can just reach out through a fragile curtain, or if you're on the Isle of Iona, reach out through the rain and touch the other reality. John Calvin insisted that the whole creation is a medium of God's revelation to us. He called creation the theater of revelation. And then went on to say that our eyes can be opened wide enough to see it. And when we, with our our settler actions and attitudes, don't sever the connections, indigenous Canadians and indigenous and tribal peoples all over the world live with a perception of the oneness, the interdependence among all peoples, between humans and the planet, all one. And it's possible, just as an example, to to fell a tree. And as it falls, actually see what we can do with the wood to make the tree useful. And if we can make money off it, even better. It's also possible to cut that tree down, seeing the Creator's gift to us and to imagine making something beautiful, useful, helpful from it and give thanks for that. And remember that if we don't pull that stump out, there is still life in that stump and those roots if we don't sever it from the earth. so. Can we see an annual congregational meeting as the visible expression of something greater? It's okay to laugh. A reality that we can't see with our eyes, even our mind's eyes? A former minister of Glenview, Dr. Stanley Glenn, could imagine a reality beyond what we can see. There's the church as we see it and know it, and there is the church as God sees it. Now Dr. Glenn applied this to communion. When we're together doing what Jesus invites us to do, we become, if only for a moment or two, the church as God sees it and intends it to be. The church that we can become. Dr. Glenn called it the transubstantiation of the congregation. He might have called it the transfiguration of the congregation. So can we see an annual congregational meeting as something more than a task to be completed, an annual ordeal to be endured, a business meeting in the hall that really doesn't have anything to do with what happened before it in the sanctuary? We gather as church to honor what we have achieved in the past year for God's mission in the world. We gather as church to do what we need to do to ensure that our ministry in this place continues for another year and more. I know that some of you come to worship and feel the presence here of the saints of Glenview past. Well, when we gather to do our business, we are in the presence of everyone who attended any congregational meeting. From the first tentative gatherings in 1924 to the first annual meeting in 1926 to today. So, can we see with our mind's eyes what the Bible calls that great cloud of witnesses cheering us on? Can we see in something as mundane as the budget, whereas I asked the 9 a.m. congregation, George's presentation of the audited financial statements, can we see those? mundane things as acts of faith? Can we see the budget as a statement of faith as expressive and valid as any creed we might recite? Because it reflects our real vision and values. In our Reformed and Presbyterian tradition we don't believe there is a wall, a hard line separating sacred and secular worldly from otherworldly, business from religion. And when we convene as a congregation after lunch, we understand that often they overlap and are part of a whole. When we gather, we become a whole that is more than the sum of the parts. And what we become when we gather in our business is no less holy than our gathering here. The great novelist Marilyn Robinson leaves us with a question. Wherever you turn your eyes, the world can shine like transfiguration. And you don't have to bring a thing to it except a little willingness to see. Only who could have the courage to see it? Amen. Glory to God.